Anyone heard of that? It's also known officially as pig-headedness. And there you go, when you have a pig for the head. Um, uh, it's, it's, it's officially where somebody refuses to accept a well-proven argument because they don't want to. Um, and the internet gave me this example. The example is this. Um, Dad says to his son, you're failing maths since you moved your Xbox into your room. You've been playing for um, six hours each day since. Before that, you consistently got A's and B's. Now you're not. Don't you think the games are a problem? And the son says, no. There we go. Ignores the evidence. Uh, refuses to engage in the argument. Uh, simply doesn't want to accept what is plain for all to see. Pig-headedness. I don't know why a pig. Are pigs particularly obstinate creatures? I don't know, really. Seems a bit unfair. Um, but it's not a compliment, is it? And nobody wants to be pig-headed. And yet we do find in life sometimes we're in that place, aren't we? Now, when it comes to following the Lord Jesus, um, those of us who might be convinced that he is all he claims to be, we still find it hard to follow through all the implications. Um, my own story with the Lord is like that. Now, I spent an, a number of years when I never really doubted the reality of Christ. I never really doubted what he'd done or the importance of it. And um, for me, the argument was clear and the evidence was plain, but I didn't want to follow where the evidence led. I didn't want to have Jesus be for me all that I knew he was. And it would be, sound nice if I said I suffered from the invincible ignorance fallacy, but I was just being pig-headed. It didn't feel like that. I wouldn't have said it at the time. But that's what it was. And it still threatens today. The old pig-head still grasps for the reins. And I think our passage today offers some hope to pig-heads. So let's go through it together. There are six scenes in this chapter. Now, last week, we looked at the first one, verses 1 to 7. Um, there, um, Jesus heals a man blind from birth. Jesus notices this man. Jesus is drawn towards the man in his suffering. Uh, the disciples, though, it poses a question for them. The disciples ask, whose fault is it? Whose sin made this happen? And Jesus redirects them away from that towards the purpose. He says the purpose of this suffering is to show the wonders of God. And the wonders are to be seen, aren't they? There are wonders. Jesus, he does this, this strange thing when he makes the mud with his spit and smears it on the man's eyes, tells the man to go and wash. And when the man does that, he can see. That's where we left it last week. And yet what follows after that, there are more wonders. Now, the restoration of the man's physical sight is just the beginning. Now, Jesus says in verse 5, I am the light of the world. And that light will shine on this man so the eyes of his heart are opened and he has a believing view of Jesus. Now, verse 7 ends with the blind man seeing. And then with us, the question, how do you deal with that? What do you do with a blind man who now sees? This man stands in our chapter as a, a gloriously, stubbornly awkward fact. He's just there, staring everyone in the face. The man who was blind can now see. How do you deal with that? Well, the next scene turns attention to the neighbors in verses 8 to 12, those who know him. His neighbors, it says, and those who had formerly seen him begging. What do they make of all this? Imagine this group of people. They, they, they knew this man. They would have talked with this man. He was part of the furniture of their lives. It would be quite unsettling when familiar things change. And, and, and there's a bit of a kerfuffle in response. Now, everybody is speaking at the same time here. That there are some who are saying, and they keep saying, that's the sense of it, they keep saying, isn't this the same man who used to sit and beg? 
And then there are others who are saying, and they keep saying, yes, it is. And then there are others who are saying as well, throwing their view into the mix, no, but he just looks like him. And then the man himself is saying and keeps saying, I am he, it's me. I'm trying to make sense of it. It's hard, it's hard to, to believe. Some find it easier to accept that the blind man has disappeared and then his double has kind of come in, a long lost twin maybe. Uh, maybe you remember the show Catchphrase. I think I've got this right. What, what was the catchphrase of catchphrase? Just say, say what you see. Just say what you see. It's simple. You just have to say what you see. But it's hard when what you see is nothing that you ever expected. The evidence is right in front of these people. They recognize the man. They knew he was blind as a bat. And now he is seeing. They're grasping for a, a different way of explaining it. Something that doesn't quite disturb them. But the stubborn fact is there. The man says, it is me. I'm right there. Uh, there was a man called Anthony Flew, who for decades and decades, as a philosopher, decades, um, was a real kind of champion of atheism and kind of humanistic arguments. Um, interestingly, he lived in Reading, where I grew up, um, and the pastor of my church used to walk past his house every day. Um, the, the, my pastor didn't know at the time who lived in the house, but he just felt drawn to pray for this man. Interesting. Because um, in 2004, um, Anthony Flew shocked the world by denouncing his atheism. Now, and what he said was this. He said, my whole life has been guided by the principle of Plato's Socrates. Follow the evidence wherever it leads. Now, now decades before, he had been part of um, C.S. Lewis's club. C.S. Lewis had a club. Uh, they drank beer and they argued about life and they called it the Socratic Club. A club where they were saying, whatever comes before us, we want to follow the evidence wherever it leads. At that time, Flew wasn't at all convinced. But he kept trying to follow the evidence where it led, even when it led him away from his atheism. Now, these neighbors in John 9, these friends of the man born blind, they're confronted with the evidence, trying to make sense of it. Are they going to follow wherever it leads? Now, the problem with Jesus is, is that he does things. <laughs> We have witnesses in the Bible put before us. We, we read about what happened, what he did, what he said. And the question comes again and again, like for these neighbors, can you accept what is in front of you? Will you follow the evidence wherever it leads? Now, for these neighbors, to make sense of it, they bring in the religious authorities. The next scene um, is the part one with the Pharisees, verses 13 to 17. Uh, Harvard University did this experiment once. Um, where they, they made a video. In the video, there were six people, three of them wearing white T-shirts, three of them wearing black T-shirts. And the six people had a basketball, which they were throwing to each other. Um, and and they, they showed the video to different people, and they asked them, count how many throws there are between these people. Now, in the middle of the video, a, a man wearing a gorilla suit walks out amongst the people, does some kind of crazy dancing, and then walks off. And those who are told to watch the video at the end are asked, did you see the gorilla? And over half didn't. They missed it. I don't know why did they miss it. They weren't looking for it. Their attention was on something else. They missed what was right in front of them. Now, the Pharisees missed the gorilla because they're fixated on something else. Now, verse 14 gives the lens through which they assess the situation. Verse 14 says, The day on which Jesus had made the mud and opened the man's eyes was a Sabbath. We've come across this already in John's Gospel, back in John 5, when Jesus 
heals a lame man. It's also on a Sabbath, and he has this big argument with the religious leaders. They get very upset about Jesus doing things on the Sabbath. See, the Pharisees were so concerned to do what God said, and the Bible says you should rest from your work on the Sabbath. But they were so concerned to make sure they did that, they added in loads of extra pieces to kind of keep that safe. They made long lists of things you couldn't do. You couldn't knead dough on a Sabbath, and making the mud would have counted in that category. So some of them had arguments about whether you were allowed to put ointment on eyes on the Sabbath. They had different views. But they did say you're not allowed to provide medical assistance unless it's a life-threatening situation. All these different rules. Uh, and it made it very clear for them, verse 16, that this man, Jesus, is not from God, for he does not keep the Sabbath. He's not from God. He's a sinner. We can reject him. There's a kind of sadness to that, isn't there? With this man standing in front of them, who was blind and now can see. It's a wonderful thing to happen. And, and they can't understand it. Of course they can't understand it, but they could be glad that something good had been done. But that wasn't their way, and they, they, have, a, they, they have a problem with it. But, the, but the, their problem is, is deepened because there's another way of approaching the situation. There, there are some among their number who are saying, but, but hold on for a minute, how can a sinner perform such signs? You've got this fact of the man who was born in blindness and now he's seeing it's creating a division. And, and on one hand, they are agreed that Jesus should be rejected. They want to get rid of Jesus. They're not interested in him. He's broken the Sabbath rules. He's a sinner. But this little stone in the shoe is irritating them. The blind man can see. that The Bible says that's what God does. That's the work of God to open the eyes of the blind. And it's not just this time. It's, you notice they say it's the signs, the plural the memory of the lame man still with them. Jesus is keeping on doing these things. Do you see their problem? They think the world works in a certain way. And it kind of makes sense to them. And then Jesus comes in and he just messes with all of that. And when Jesus comes in, it challenges them that they might be wrong. They might not have really understood what the Sabbath was about. How do they resolve this division among them? Well, they have a number of options. The first option, they try verse 18, it didn't happen. That would really sort out. If the man wasn't actually healed, if Jesus hadn't actually performed a sign, well, then they can just move on. You see the challenge before them, don't you? Will they accept they might be wrong? Will they accept that their way of viewing the world, the lens through which they see, might mean that they don't see the gorilla on the middle of the screen? It's easier to assume that somebody else has got it wrong, isn't it? Always assume that we're right and other people are wrong. And, and, and they do that. They, they think, well, there's got to be some mistake here. It can't be what it seems to be. So in the next scene, the parents come in. We don't know too much about this man's parents. We know that they've had the sadness of their son born blind. We know, as we can see in this chapter, it would have cast suspicion on them within their community. That their acceptance in that community would feel fragile. And, and now they get summoned to the authorities. They're, they're interrogated by the authorities. Is this your son? Question one. Is this the one you say was born blind? Question two. How is it he can see? Question three. There's got to be something else, say the leaders. Some anomaly. Some mistake. The, the, the neighbors could have been confused. Let's get the parents in. We'll, we'll straighten it out. And the parents answer the questions. Question one. We know he is our son. Question two, we know he was born blind. They can't deny these things. 
And, and now he's standing before them not blind. That, that's the evidence. The facts are there. The third question, how is it he can now see? We don't know, they say. In fact, they say it twice. There's a bit more emphasis in the original than in the translation. They, they say, who, how it happened, we don't know. And who did it? We ourselves, we don't know. Stop looking at us, they say. And, and then they throw their son under the bus. You ask him. He's old enough to answer. Don't get us tangled up in this. We don't want to be part of it. Of course, they know the answers. Their son is telling everyone about what happened. They would know that it was Jesus who made the mud and put it on the man's eyes and told him to wash. That's how it happened. That's who did it. They know it, but they're too scared to tell it. We're told that they're scared, aren't we? Verse 22. His parents said this because they were afraid of the Jewish leaders who already decided that anyone who acknowledged that Jesus was the Messiah would be put out of the synagogue. Follow the evidence wherever it leads. That's the problem. It's a problem for them. If they follow the evidence, uh, the healing of this blind man, this evidence is going to lead them to a point where they have to say, Jesus is the Messiah. They say that, then they get put out of the synagogue. They become social outcasts. So it's easier to say, we don't know. Uh, with, with Daniel Gatwood starting his engineering career, it reminds me of the start of my engineering career. My very first week uh, working as a graduate in an, an engineering firm, um, we, we were meeting kind of all the graduates of the company came together and chatting with these people who had been there a bit before me, um, kind of getting to know each other. And, and we're sitting around, and one of, these, one of these older guys said to me, what are you doing at the weekend? Now, now for me, that weekend I was preaching at church on Sunday, so my weekend was preparing to preach on Saturday and preaching on Sunday. That was my weekend. And this guy says, what are you doing at the weekend? Now, if, if I were to tell him, then it'd mean that he knows I follow Jesus, that, that I believed that he was the Messiah. It would set me apart in that group. And, and they probably wouldn't know how to respond. And before they even got to know me, I'd be cut off and excluded. And so I answered the question about my weekend with a shrug of the shoulders. Nothing much. No, don't ask me. No, I don't know. The fear of being excluded. And the fear sticks. Following the evidence wherever it leads might lead us somewhere we don't want to be. Now, so often it's easier to say, we don't know. You go and ask somebody else. Don't, don't look at me. Go over there. And that's what happens here. Again, the man born blind is summoned. And the next scene, we turn back to the Pharisees, part two with the Pharisees. The Pharisees whose minds are made up. Jesus is a sinner. This healing cannot be what it looks like. There must be something else, they think. They asked the parents, but that didn't help. It just confirmed the facts. He was born blind, and now he sees. So, so they get the man up, and they say, come on, give glory to God by telling the truth. You see their assumption? He's lying. He's not telling them something. Tell the truth. Tell the truth. Why? They say, because we know. We know. We are sure Jesus is a sinner. We're not going to budge on that, so you must be lying. Now, if the evidence challenges your assumptions, best to revise your assumptions. That's not what they do, though. No, we know, they say. We, we know this. We know he's a sinner. And the man says, I don't know that. But the thing I do know the thing that cannot be denied and it cannot be hidden, I was blind and now I see. 
It's the evidence that must be followed. It's right there in front of them. But, but again, they think maybe we missed something. Maybe there's just some little detail. Maybe even the man himself didn't know it, but there's something else. Tell us again, they say, what did he do? How did he open your eyes? And the man stands his ground. He says, I've, I've told you already, and you did not listen. Why do you want to hear it again? Do you want to become his disciples? And that puts the finger on the soft spot. See, if they accept that Jesus did this, if they follow the evidence wherever it leads, it's going to lead to them having to follow Jesus, becoming his disciples. It's the only reasonable response. Now, last time we saw the significance of this miracle explained. It's explained throughout the whole of the Bible, the Old Testament leading up to this point. The Bible the Pharisees are experts in. The, the, the psalm tells us that it is the Lord who gives sight to the blind. Now, when Jesus gives sight to the blind, the, the, the plain implication is that he is the Lord. He's God himself doing something. And, and then the prophets who, who, who promised that there would come a time of restoration. The, the, the prophets who spoke about the dawning of a new age when sorrows would end and when gladness would abound. A, a time when the whole world would be made new. A time when God would come to sort it all out. When God would come to fix all the brokenness. A, a, a time when God would bring in the world that our hearts ache for. And the sign of God doing that is this. The eyes of the blind will be opened. When Jesus comes... Opening the eyes of the blind. The message, it couldn't be clearer. Here he is, it's the Messiah. The Messiah has come to save. The implications are clear. He is the one to follow. If you want to get out of this mess, you follow him. You, you go after him. He's the escape route. He's the, the rescue. The path to life. The light shining in the darkness. The way to eternal peace. Do you want to become his disciples? The one thing the Pharisees don't want to do. They don't want to follow the evidence where it leads. But they can't deny it. They can't find another explanation. So what comes next? When Anthony Flew, the atheist philosopher, denounced his atheism, his fellow atheist did not like it. And he said this. He said, I have been denounced by my fellow unbelievers for stupidity, betrayal, senility, and everything you can think of. And none of them have read a word that I've ever written. Insults. That's what happens here with the Pharisees, isn't it? Verse 28, they hurled insults at him. Now, we're disciples of Moses. Now, even though Jesus has already explained to them that if they were disciples of Moses, they would believe what Moses said when Moses spoke about Jesus. But the man stands his ground again, doesn't he? He says to them, now that is remarkable. You don't know where he comes from, yet he opened my eyes. Follow the evidence wherever it leads. Somebody's opening the eyes of the blind man. He says, nobody has ever heard of the opening of the eyes of a man born blind. You can't just dismiss what Jesus did. You can't just call him a sinner. He's doing what only God can do. You can't say you don't know where he's from. He must be from God if this is what he's doing. It's remarkable, he says. He says, your unbelief is unbelievable. You know, there are people today who have heard so much about Jesus. They've had their questions answered. Examine the evidence. They haven't really got an argument left, but they still don't believe. They won't follow him. Their belief becomes unbelievable. 
and these Pharisees are like that. They can't resolve the problem of the blind man now seeing. They resort to reviling him, and when that doesn't work, in verse 34, they remove him. You were steeped in sin at birth. How dare you lecture us? And they threw him out. You remember the disciples' question at the start? When they saw the blind man, they asked Jesus, who sinned? Assuming this, this man's blindness was a direct result of his sin, and Jesus corrected them. But that's the same idea the Pharisees have. This man was born blind, so he must have been steeped in sin at birth. He is utterly sinful. In their eyes, he is unredeemably sinful. There's no way back for him. You just need to shut him out. Now, the Pharisees divided the world like that into sinners and non-sinners. Sinners and themselves. Uh, for Jesus, he's in the sinner category. They don't want anything to do with him. And this man, well, they can't accept that he exists. So they remove him. And he's a sinner. He's not like them. They thank God they're not like him. Now, and once they've removed him, now the problem's solved, isn't it? Now they can move on. And moving on for them means they can just stay as they are. They haven't got to change. They haven't got to be unsettled. They're back to normal. But then Jesus comes back on the scene. The sixth scene. You remember the fear of the parents? The, the thing the, parent, the parents feared was the thing that has now happened to the son. Uh, he, he's stuck to what he knew, and now he's been outcast. Perhaps you could imagine that the parents coming and finding him, speaking to him and saying to him, what are you playing at, son? What are you doing? No, no, why did you have to go and do that? Why did you have to stick your ground and say all those things? Couldn't you just say you didn't know like we did? No, you were just getting your life back on track, weren't you? You, you, you just had this great turning point in your life. Now, now you can see you'd be able to get some work and get a job and, and you might be able to find a wife and have a family and settle down and you'd have a, a lovely, comfortable life. What, what were you thinking? You've been outcast now. People are, are going to be suspicious of you. They won't want to give you work. They won't want their daughters to marry you. You could have had it all. Oh, we don't know if they said that, of course. We know they feared being outcast. And now here's this man standing on his own. But, but he's not on his own for long because that verse 35 tells us Jesus found him. Just like in verse 1, it was Jesus who saw him, saw him in his blindness, drawn to his suffering. Again, it's Jesus drawn to him. Verse 35, Jesus finds him. And it presents to us that question, doesn't it? Is it worth it? Is it worth losing the world to be found by Jesus? Now, I wonder how you would answer that. Now, if it could all be laid out for you, if you could have this route set for you, a long, healthy, happy life, good job, a secure family, if you could have that route but not have Jesus, would you take it? It'd be tempting, wouldn't it? But then the words of Jesus might just cut into our hearts when he said, what good is it, what gain is it for a man to have the whole world and yet forfeit his soul? Jesus finds the man and he asks him, do you believe in the Son of Man? Now that's how Jesus understood himself, the Son of Man, fulfilling the visions of Daniel the prophet years and years before. Now this is the vision of Daniel the prophet. A vision of one like a son of man coming with the clouds of heaven. 
He approached the Ancient of Days and was led into his presence. He was given authority, glory, and sovereign power. All nations and peoples of every language worshipped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away, and his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. You see, Jesus, Son of God, has been born Son of Man, come into our world, come into our humanity on a mission to return to heaven clothed in that same humanity. A mission that would lead him to the cross. And on the cross where he would pay for the sins of his people. And on the cross where he would cry in victory that his work is finished. And then he'd be buried. And on the third day rise and then return to heaven. And the Son of Man would approach the Ancient of Days and receive the reward of his suffering, all power and authority. And he would bring in the everlasting kingdom, the kingdom of peace, uh, the kingdom where all suffering and sin is in the rearview mirror getting smaller and smaller and smaller. Sorrow and sighing would flee away. Everlasting joy would crown his people forever. God would come to save. And the Son of Man would rule in perfect love. And what would be the sign? Remember the sign? The eyes of the blind will be opened. And Jesus now says to the man whose blind eyes have been opened, do you believe in the Son of Man? Will you follow where the evidence leads? Will you follow that your healing, astonishing as it is, is a sign to something more? A sign to all the sad things coming untrue? Will you follow the Son of Man into his eternal home? This man is taking his first steps of discipleship. The first steps of following Jesus. And his physical eyes have been healed. And his spiritual eyes are being opened. He's been given that believing view of Jesus. He says, who is he, sir? Tell me so that I may believe in him. And Jesus said, you have now seen him. In fact, he is the one speaking with you. And then the man said, Lord, I believe. And he worshipped him. Worshipped him, just like Daniel prophesied. This man now takes his place among all the nations and all the peoples worshipping the Son of Man. Is it worth losing the world to be found by Jesus? This man follows the evidence wherever it leads. And it leads him right into the eternal loving heart of God. And a future beyond compare. And then in verse 39. Jesus gives his take on all that has been happening. That all this, this whole chapter, the parents, the Pharisees, the man, all of these things, the neighbors as well. And Jesus says, for judgment I have come into this world so that the blind will see and those who see will become blind. The light shines in the darkness. And Jesus is the light of the world and his coming shines and his shining draws a response. Jesus stands as the deciding, dividing factor. He says, some who were blind will see, and others who see will become blind. And it's Jesus standing between those outcomes. Now, who then are those who see but become blind? Well, verse 40, we find some Pharisees listening in. They sense Jesus is talking about them. They're not impressed. What they say, are we blind too? They don't think they're blind. They think they see clearly. And Jesus says, if you were blind... You would not be guilty of sin. You would not have sin. But now that you claim you can see, your guilt remains, your sin remains. That's their problem. The problem is they claim to see. But they don't think they need the light of the world. They don't think they need Jesus. 
They claim they can see, but they're blind. And Jesus says, because of that, your guilt remains. You see, at the beginning of the chapter, the disciples ask about the blind man, who sinned to make it happen? That's not the most important question. It's the Pharisees' question. They divide the world like that. There are sinners, and there are not sinners. But Jesus says, you do have a sin problem. Your sin remains. In fact, everybody has a sin problem. That's not the most important thing. The most important thing is, will you accept Jesus or not? The Pharisees don't think they need Jesus. They they won't accept him. And Jesus says, if you were blind, if you were willing to admit you can't see clearly and you need help, if, if that's where you were, I would find you and I would rescue you and I would take away your sin. But as it is, you say that you see. You're not willing to receive any help and I can't do anything for your sin. Now, all of us have sinned. It's not our sin that keeps us away from Jesus. It's not our sin that keeps Jesus away from us. What keeps us away from Jesus is not wanting help from him. And that's where I think a glimmer of hope shines for those of us who find we sometimes have a pig on our head. Now this blind man is a living illustration. All he can do is trust what Jesus says. This man is blind until Jesus finds him. The light of the world comes to him, opens his eyes. The light of the world comes to find him and opens the eyes of his heart to give him a believing view of Jesus. And the coming of Jesus into history. And and the testimonies about him that we have recorded in the Bible, those eyewitness records and the resurrection and the explosion of the Christian faith and the, the millions today who confess him as their Lord. The evidence calls to be followed. Followed wherever it leads. Followed to a point where we realize that we are the blind whose only hope is for the light of the world to shine on us and our greatest need in all the world is to be found by Jesus. Now the hope for the pig-headed is when we simply say, I need Jesus. I need Jesus. Now this man takes his first steps of discipleship. He sees Jesus and he says, I believe and he worships. And his first steps of discipleship, they're the second steps and the third steps, and they're all the steps. You know, if you're anything like me, and you know that that old pig head often still wants to call the shots, that's what we come back to. The, the true disciple keeps looking to Jesus. Now, the Rugby World Cup starts on Friday. Um, England are pretty hopeless at the moment. I'm not sure I've seen them quite so bad. They've received an awful lot of criticism. Uh, After their last game, which was probably one of their worst games, um, one of the players tweeted and said, write us off now. And then again he said, stick with us through the dark. That's what true fans do, isn't it? Whatever the result between Arsenal and Man U later, uh, true fans will stick with their team, won't they? Now that's how you know what a true supporter is. They keep supporting It's something the same when it comes to true disciples of Jesus. They keep looking to Jesus. Keep looking to Jesus when it means rejection by society. The fear of being outcast. The true disciple keeps looking to Jesus, following the evidence wherever it leads. The true disciple is prepared to be wrong. They know they need to learn. They realize their ways of seeing need correcting. But the true disciple won't let their sin get between them and Jesus. They refuse to divide the world into sinners and non-sinners. Refuse the Pharisees' blindness of thinking they don't need Jesus to save. The true disciple keeps looking to Jesus, keeps needing him. 
so what about you? I wonder, are you prepared to follow the evidence wherever it leads? And then to keep following. You know, I could tell a story. It's kind of many stories, really. Many of my, my close friends, um, I put their stories all together. Um, I put it into Lucy's story. Uh, as a teenager, she was, she was bright, um, full of energy. She was on fire for the Lord. That's what we said. Uh, sold out for Jesus. Uh, we, we used to sing a song about being history makers. And she really believed it. And if you looked at her, you would believe it too. She had the guts and the passion to change the world. And, and then life happened. She got a little bit older. Life started to throw up the muck that life does. She had some illness. Her relationships didn't work out in the way she wanted them to. How she imagined life would be wasn't how it was, and the world groaned, and so did she. The struggle of making it through another day, that's what took over, and, and Christians around her, they, didn't, they, they weren't there for her. They let her down, and they hurt her, and her faith in Christ melted away. And today, she has no interest in Christian things. She's bitter, and she, she can't believe she used to believe those things. What happened? So much happened, really, but the one thing which unites all the stories that make up hers is that she stopped thinking she needed Jesus to save her from her sin. And once she did, but she started to think more of what she could do for Christ than what Christ could do for her. And it was subtle, and it was deadly, and she stopped saying to Jesus, I need you. And for you this morning, what is your next move? Now for the neighbors, they were confused and they tried to find out more. Is that what you need? To find out more about Jesus, to examine more of the evidence and begin to follow where it leads? Or the parents, they were scared. And you, you have to wonder at the very end of the chapter, what would their son now say to them? Wouldn't he say, it really is worth it. You can't lose when Jesus finds you. Is that what you need to hear? Or, or the Pharisees? Easy to dismiss them, but often they're the ones we're most like. They need to admit their need. Stop thinking they've got it all sorted. They need to see Jesus is willing to rescue them too, if they'll ask. If they'll ask him. And then for this man, the, the one who was blind and now sees, his next move is just like his last one, to keep looking at Jesus, to stick with Jesus, to stand his ground and follow the evidence wherever it leads. What's your next move? Let's just take a moment and quietly think about that for yourself, and then I'll pray. Our Father in heaven, I thank you that you know us here. You know the secret things in our hearts in these moments. Lord, I pray that for each of us, that you would give us a clearer sight of Jesus. Lord, you know where we are. Maybe we've not put our faith in him. Maybe we've walked with him long. 
Lord, maybe there are joys, maybe there are struggles today. Lord, for each of us, would you help us to keep our eyes fixed on Jesus and to see more of him. Amen. Are we going to sing as we conclude this part of our service together? Are we going to remember that there is amazing grace, uh, that those of us who trust Jesus can say, I once was lost, but now I'm found. I was blind, but now I see.